Hey, y'all. So we are, uh, it's going to be a kind of a different, very different kind of message today. You know, we have been walking through Paul's letter to the church in Rome for several months now. We're in chapter 10. We hit the first four verses of chapter 10 last week. And if you're new to our church, we kind of walk through the text of the Bible. We don't skip the hard part. We don't skip the difficult parts. We're walking through uh, the book of Romans. But we're going to take a little detour today. We're going to do something else today and maybe even next week. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk through some stuff about the book. And so we're going to, I want to look today first in a Paul uh, writing, second letter to Timothy. Paul is writing to his, he calls him his spiritual son, Timothy. Timothy's in Ephesus. Timothy is a young pastor. And uh, Paul is pouring out his life into Timothy to train him up, to equip him, to lead the charge in that church in Ephesus to, uh, to, to shepherd this group of people. And Paul's pouring into him. And he says this in chapter uh, 3 of 2 Timothy, getting down, down towards the end of, of 2 Timothy. He says to Timothy, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God would be complete and equipped for every good work. The, it's, the scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired. We're going to use that word inspired. And it is profitable for those four things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training, not just any kind of training, but training in righteousness. Why? So that we would be equipped to do good works so that we be so that we it is an equipping thing i believe y'all that there are only 3 problems that we have 3 problems that befall man sin sorrow and death and you may say no 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 you're stupid there's a thousand problems that we have but i'm telling you that they all fall under one of those 3 um, umbrellas one of those 3 categories any problem we would ever have fall into one of the categories sin sorrow and death. And this book, y'all, this is the only book that solves every one of those problems. Every single one of them. I don't care what they are. This book has the answer and the solution, and it's God-breathed to any problem that would ever come across our way. So today, I want to talk about this book. I want to talk about the Bible. I want to talk about what we think about it. And ultimately, I want to begin to answer the question, is it trustworthy? Can you trust the Bible? Can you trust it? Y'all, I've been a Christian, it'll be 20 years, January 17th, in about a month. It'll be 20 years since I gave my life to Christ. And I wake up every day, and what gets me up every day is, is not my emotions, it's not how I feel, because those two things will deceive us. I'm going to tell you that Satan, who's the great deceiver, will use your emotions and your feelings to deceive you constantly. So that's not what gets me up in the morning. What gets me up in the morning is what I know. And what I know that I know that I know, it comes from this. Because I know it, I can trust it, and I know what I know from this book. And that's what gets me up kind of every day. It's God's Word. And I want to give you some, um, maybe this is a little mechanical, but some mechanical facts and figures about the Scriptures. 66 books, a collection of 66 Books of different genre. You know what a genre is. There are books of poetry. There's books of wisdom, kind of wisdom literature. There's biographical narratives. You know, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're kind of biographies 
of Christ. There's prophecy in Scripture. There's just straight history in, in Scripture. There's uh, apocalyptic kind of writings, all kinds of different genres written by 40-plus people, different kind of people, man, doctors and prophets and kings and shepherds, all walks of life, fishermen, you know, uh, tax collectors, all kinds of different people, different education levels, different intelligence levels, way different kinds of folks written on three continents in probably 14 different countries with three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. This book's been tra and written to different circumstances and different issues and addressing different issues in different places. It's been translated into more languages than any other book in history unparalleled popularity and the message that the scripture contains. Because of those things, it's also been attacked more than any other book ever in the history of the planet. And despite those attacks that have, been, that have happened since the very beginning of the scriptures, those just a constant tirade of arrows, despite that, the Bible remains the authoritative book for about two and a half billion professing Christians and it's the best selling book of all time and so if that last thing I said is true if it is the authoritative book for two and a half billion ish professing Christians and it is the best selling book of all time where would you suspect that the devil's attack is going to be you know where would he's a deceiver and he's good at deceiving y'all he sorry at it he's good at it so where's he going to attack? How's he going to try to deceive us? His motives have not changed, y'all. The first deception in the garden, what did the snake say? Did God really say? He ain't doing no different today. And so how's he going to do that? If it is the word of God, if this is actually God breathed, if it is actually his word, then the devil is going to try to convince me and you that you can't trust it. You can't trust it. He'll throw all kind of darts, but at the end of the day, he's going to try to convince us that we can't trust it. And he'll use every tool at his disposal. He is the primary enemy of the Word of God. He's not the only enemy of the Word of God, but he's the primary enemy of the Word of God. Make no bones about it, y'all. There's a war. We are in a battle. And the battle is for your heart and it's for your mind. And the, the thing being attacked the thing that we're at war over is the Word of God. And it didn't start, you know, in January with some virus. It didn't start um, 10 years ago. It started with, did God really say, back in the garden. Listen, there are people that hate it, the Scripture I'm talking about. There are people that hate it. They despise it. They want to see it gone. There are people, there are folks that deny it. They say, I don't believe it. It may be nice little stories. But, but I don't believe, you don't actually believe that what it says is true. You don't really believe that. So there are people that deny it. There are people that dilute it. Matter of fact, that's a big one. People that dilute it. Like a preacher or a theologian who waters it down. They come up with some maybe even kind of good motivational speech. And then they open this up and they pull out and sprinkle a little Jesus on the motivational speech and then tell you that's the gospel. Well, no, it ain't. No, it ain't. No, it ain't. They pulled a little bit out, a little bit out, and they put it on top 
of some motivational kind. And they may be an incredible speaker, but that's not a gospel-centric, Jesus-centric message. So there are folks that dilute it, deny it, despise it. There's folks who distort it and twist it around, and that is like the dude that, uh, that takes a smidgen of truth and then manipulates it and twists it around, usually out of context, and force some meaning into it that was never there. All of those people and all of that kind of thinking, they're all enemies of the Word of God. And you think, well, God, that sounds kind of harsh. Well, maybe it is, but they're enemies of the Word. It's one of the reasons why we are committed to preaching through Scripture. When you preach through a book of a Bible and you discuss through a book of a Bible, it's pretty difficult to avoid the difficult stuff. Right? I hope that makes sense. Now, the last enemy, quote, of God, excuse me, of the Word of God, and maybe the most dangerous is the professing Christian that never cracks the book open. They never dig in it. They never open it. They never read it. They never study it. It sits on some table in, in the house collecting so much dust you could write your name on the top of it. Now, they don't hate the Word, probably don't even deny the Word, maybe don't distort it or any of that, but they disregard it. They disregard it because they never crack it open and read it. And probably because they've been deceived into thinking, that's for the pastors. You know, that's for the priest. That's, you can't really understand that yourself. Let them, let them read it and they'll tell you what, what it means. You know, the Roman Catholic Church has done a great job of doing that right there for 2,000 years, y'all. This book is for everybody. Now, it was not written to Ed, that first and second Timothy was written to who? Timothy. But is it for Ed's use and for Susan's use and for Lonnie's use and to Mike's, Michael's use? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is not beyond your comprehension. You don't have to go to some seminary to understand Scripture. What is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Scripture and bring understanding to you? Okay? The Bible is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. Here's why you need to know and trust that it is the Word of God. Here's why you need it. Three reasons why you need to understand and, and believe and trust that it is inspired. Number one is that your salvation, that song, the King of Kings song, dude, that was the gospel. Like, that was straight out of Scripture, the gospel. And so the Word, your salvation depends on on your understanding of the gospel message as it's laid out in Scripture. Your salvation is dependent upon your understanding of the gospel message as it's laid out in Scripture, number one. Number two, the assurance of that salvation, the assurance of your salvation, it rests in the truth claims that the Scripture makes, number two. And number three is this, your spiritual growth depends on living by the principles that are laid out in God's Word. All of that is breathed out by God. Today I want to give you, that was an 11-minute introduction. I want to give you uh, five or six reasons why I believe um, and why you should believe that that, that book is God-breathed, why that book is trustworthy, why this book is, in fact, the Word of God. And all of these reasons, these five or six, every one of them are places where the devil is going to attack. He's been doing it for a long time. He's good at it, and it is where he will do his very best to plant seeds of doubt in your mind. 
You know, one of the, 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 the scariest things to me with our kids, and we just saw two beautiful little kids, is that the world is going to spend the next 20 years trying to deceive them, right? I'm not up here indicting education, but I'm telling you that the schools are going to try to deceive those sweet little children. They are. It is up to us to instill trust in the truth claims that the Scripture makes with our own children and come alongside, you know, everybody in our church family and, and just lend some veracity to the, to the text of the Bible. So let me give you these five or six reasons. Number one is this. The Scriptures are scientifically accurate. Is the Bible a science book? Say no, it's not. Does the Bible contain science? Say yes, it does. Where it speaks to science, it is true and accurate and infallible. I want to give you a few examples. Each thing we talk about this morning, I want to give you a few examples. One scientific fundamental, I guess we would call it, is that the earth is suspended in space. We all know that. It's 2020. We, we've sent people to the moon and we've sent you know, satellites up and we can look back and we see that the earth is suspended in space. Well, what did the ancient Egyptians believe? What did they believe? They believed that the earth was supported by pillars. What did the Hindus believe? What, they believed that the earth was being supported on the backs of elephants. Well, what did the Greeks believe? The Greeks believed that Atlas was holding the earth up on his shoulders. Now, they really believed that, y'all. They did. I'm not making that stuff up. But the book of Job, which is arguably one of the oldest pieces of literature that we know of, in Job in chapter 26 and verse 7, says that God stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Right? Hangs the earth on nothing. We take for, and that's in the scripture written way, way, way before we knew anything about some satellite looking back and seeing the earth suspended in space. We take for granted that the, that the earth is round. We do. Think about it. 1492. Somebody finished the, the little saying. Columbus sailed ocean blue. Well, even as late as then. I mean, that's 1492. People still kind of believe that the earth was flat. But Isaiah in 750-ish B.C., you know, 750 years or so before Christ, which would be about 2,200 years before um, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, Isaiah said that it's God who sits above the circle of the earth. It's in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22. The word translated circle is chug. Y'all say that because I bet you can't. One, two, three, say chug. Lonnie does a pretty good job. You kind of have to have some Jewish roots to, to go <laughs> So it's chug. But that, that word that's translated circle, it really means globe or sphere. It means globe or sphere. How did Job way back know that God had hung the earth on nothing? How did Isaiah know, not quite as far back as Job, but way back, how did he know that the earth is round? Here's how. The scripture is God-breathed. God, I think, would know science, would he not? Who created gravity? It ain't the person that, that, uh, that discovered it. The discoverer didn't create it. The creator created it. So, 
His word is infallible, y'all, because he is infallible. So science for thousands of years believed that the earth was flat, but scripture said, no, 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 it's round. Here's another little fact relating to the science in the Bible. We would say today that, uh, that the stars in our galaxy are way, it would be absurd to try to number the stars. You and I wouldn't be so dumb as to try to walk outside and count the stars, but there was a dude 150 years before Christ, his name was Hipparchus. Hipparchus was the scientist of the day. Hipparchus set out and said, I'm going to count the stars. I'm the man. I'm the scientist of the day. I'm going to count the stars. And he did. He got weary, but he did. 1,022. He said, there's 1,022 stars out there. 2,020, we look back and say, that is the stupidest thing ever. But back then, he was the scientist of the day. 1,022 stars. For 250 years, y'all, that was the science of the day. That joker was the man. He was Fauci. He was the man. We trusted him. We believed him. Y'all heard that. Everybody else didn't hear that. Um, 1,022 stars for 250 years, but then Ptolemy came along and said, no, man, you said there are 1,022. I counted them. There's 1,056. You missed 34. So he said, no, not 1,022, 1,056. Well, that was the prevailing science for like 1,300 years. For 1,300 years. They believed that there was 1,056 stars. It upgraded the science until Galileo invented the telescope. And he looked beyond what the naked eye could see. And he saw there was thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions and billions and whatever of stars. And so he's like, no fool would ever dare to try to count all of those. All of them could have saved time if they turned to, the, to Jeremiah. In the scriptures, verse 22, Jeremiah 33, as the hosts of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant. The scripture spoke to the hosts of heaven. That's the stars and everything out there. Y'all, we've been dealing with quarantine for almost a year now, right? This idea of quarantine. Well, not the, the reality, I guess, of quarantine. Where do you think that concept came from? Where did it come from? Think about the Black Plague that hit Europe in the 14th century. You know how many people died in the Black Plague? One out of four in Europe. 25% of the folks died in the Black Plague. They couldn't control it. They had no concept of microbiology. Not like we have today. You know what finally brought the plague to an end? The Bible. The Bible. They turned to Scripture in Leviticus chapter 13. It literally brought an end to the plague. Verse 46 in Leviticus 13 says, As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside of the camp. They learn to quarantine from the Word of God. Way before microbiology, way before they knew anything about germs, way before they knew anything about some virus. The Scripture, you think the virus snuck up on God? No, no. He knew all about this stuff. He lays out. Lays it out that I told you, sin, sorrow, and death, the answer to every problem we would ever have is contained in the Scripture because they all fall underneath one of those little categories. I could give you example after example after example of, of the, where the Bible speaks to science, but where it speaks to science, it's accurate and it's infallible. And then it is accurate in the details of history. This is a huge place, y'all, where the devil attacks. Huge place. Is it a history book? No. But does it contain history? Yes. And where it contains history, it's accurate. Like there's a record in 2 Kings in chapter 18 
where you had the king of Assyria and you had this, this, um, this narrative of where the king of Assyria and King Hezekiah in Israel have this, um, this transaction between each other. And it says that he gave 30 talents of gold and 300 talents of silver. A talent is a unit of measure of, of the currency, the silver and the gold. It says 30 talents of gold, 300 talents of silver, which doesn't seem like a big deal until archaeologists discovered in the Assyrian records the record of that deal between Sennacherib and, and uh, Hezekiah. And in fact, they discovered the Assyrian king's own record. And in his record, it says there was 30 talents of gold and 800 talents of silver. And here's what the haters say. Here's what you're going to see on the Discovery Channel. This is why you can't trust the Bible. It, it doesn't do good with all the little details. You can't trust it. You see, it was 800 talents of silver. It wasn't 300. So you just you can't trust all of that. It doesn't do good with the little numbers. Until it does, until the archaeologists find some other stuff. And so further archaeological discoveries found that the unit of measure in, in Syria was different than it was in Israel. It took 800 silver talents to equal, how many do you think? 300 Hebrew talents. So the record in Scripture was 1 billion percent perfectly accurate and right. Because, but the Syrian record was too because they were measuring it in their unit of measure and the scripture is measuring it, measuring it in the Hebrew unit of measure. There was not contradiction there. They're, they're both exactly right. And then you got like uh, in Daniel chapter 5, you've got uh, this story about King Belshazzar and the handwriting on the wall. That phrase, the handwriting's on the wall, it comes from the Bible. It comes from Daniel chapter 5. And, and in that narrative in Daniel 5, um, there, it talks about that Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon. Well, the scholars laugh at that and say that that's absurd, that never happened because we have the records from ancient Babylon and we know that Belshazzar was not the last king. But you know there's not a test on this. I'm just giving you examples, all these names. We know that Belshazzar was not the last king of Babylon, the last king of Babylon by their records, was a guy named Nabonidus. And so it's obvious that somebody just made this story up and stuck it in Scripture, and it ain't accurate because it's the wrong last king until the spade of some archaeologist digs up this clay cylinder that has the name on it, Belshazzar and Nabonidus. And those records showed that they were co-regents. Co-regents. Anybody ever watched Downton Abbey? You know what a co-regent is? You can have two kings at the same time. And Belshazzar and Nabonidus were father and son. They ruled together at the same time because one of them was a big game hunter and a big traveler, and he would leave for long periods of time and leave the other one in charge. They were both the last king of Babylon. And I could go on and on and on, but listen, man, when the Bible talks about science... When the Bible talks about history, when the Bible talks about mathematics, whatever it is that the Bible speaks to, it's the Word of God. And God is infallible and inerrant, and so is His Word. It's accurate in the details of prophecy, huge amounts of prophetic fulfillment in Scripture. And we can study all kinds of fulfilled prophecy, but let's just look at just a few as they relate, 
as these prophecies relate to the person and the nature of Christ. You think about the scripture and the prophecies just that have to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's over 300 of them. He fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. And skeptics will say, and I can say this because I was one of them. I was the guy that if you had said to me, look at all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, I was the guy that would say, but he rigged it all. He rigged it. He, you know, he, he made it so that he, he orchestrated his life so that he would fulfill the prophecies. I was the dude that said that. It's so stupid. I was stupid. I mean, that was a, that's an absurd thought. Think about it. Just think about it. If you believe that, here's some of the things, and I did believe that, but here's some of the things, y'all, that he arranged. He fixed where he would be born. He rigged it so that he would be born in Bethlehem. You know, like, how do you do that? But that's one of the things that he rigged. He managed then for uh, the prophet Isaiah. Anybody remember how long ago we said Isaiah wrote before Christ? Seven or eight hundred years. That's a long time, folks. So seven or eight hundred years before Jesus was born, somehow he rigged it so that, uh, that Isaiah would describe like his entire life and where he would be born. And you can read about those things, Isaiah um, chapter 7, chapter 9, and chapter 53. You know, did me and you arrange um, to have the history of our lives written before we were born? Then he arranged to be, uh, he, Jesus, arranged to be executed by crucifixion, executed by being crucified on a cross. You know, if you read Psalm 22, anybody know when David wrote Psalm 22, ballpark? About 1,000 B.C., in the neighborhood of 1,000 years before Christ, David penned Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is like this image of Jesus' crucifixion as, as written, and, and David paints this picture like he is standing there watching it, like he is standing at the foot of the cross seeing it. That's the way Psalm 22 looks. It tells about the piercing of, of Jesus' hands. It talks about the piercing of his feet. It talks about the guards gambling for his garments. The very words that Jesus spoke on the cross, David recorded in Psalm 22. Now, the haters would say that Jesus hanging on the cross, having been mercilessly beaten for hours and nailed to a cross... Is, is looking back and quoting David's words. No, no. David, a thousand years earlier, is looking forward, quoting Jesus' words. I hope that makes sense. It is written, I'm telling you, like somebody who is an eyewitness to the events. That one psalm has 30-plus direct prophecies that are fulfilled in what happened at Calvary that first Easter weekend. And even more crazy, when David wrote this prophecy, crucifixion wasn't even a thing. Crucifixion is a Roman form of, of capital punishment. Rome wasn't even in power for, for three or four hundred years until about three or four hundred years later. So you think about David, and I can picture David 
running from King Saul and he's out in a field somewhere laying in a field. This is just like the reality of Scripture. He's laying in a field and he's writing some of the Psalms. And he, particularly he's writing Psalm 22. And he's writing about crucifixion. But he doesn't even know what that is. Right? It's not even a thing. So he's probably, he probably writes about pierced hands and pierced feet and he's like, what is this? Right? But it's God's word. It's God's word. You know, think about the truthfulness of Scripture. David's laying out in that field in one of the Psalms, and he, Psalm 8, I think, and he looks up, the heavens declare the glory of God. It is real. He's probably laying there looking up at the sky saying, oh, my gosh, the God of the universe created and hung all of that stuff up there. The heavens declare the glory of God. You know, did Jesus fix it so that he was crucified between two thieves? Did he arrange so that a rich guy would, would give him a, a tomb to use? The Bible prophesies all of that in Isaiah chapter 53. Y'all, you want to read the gospel in the Old Testament? Go read Isaiah chapter 53. The Bible prophesied that Judas would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver in the, uh, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 11. I think it's chapter 11. You can study the Bible and it will predict things historically that are absolutely accurate. A dude named Peter Stoner who is a, uh, an apologist and an author, uh, he wrote about just 11, just 11 of the prophecies about Christ with all of the detail and he calculated what the odds are that that would happen by chance. We know about chance and randomness, y'all. The odds would be 1 in 5.76 times 10 to the 59th power. And you say, what does that mean? And I say, I made a C in algebra. Like, <laughs> I ain't got no idea what that means. I know that's a bunch of zeros. Somebody that's a mathematician figure that out. A bunch of zeros. Statistically, absolutely impossible. So the scripture is accurate in the prophecy. And we know the, word, the Bible is the Word of God, and we trust that it's inspired by the unity in Scripture. It's uncanny, the unity across that book. One book, Genesis to Revelation, but 66 books inside of there. Forty writers, we talked about this a minute ago, 40 writers, you know, three different continents, different genres, you know, writers writing to different situations, um, from different backgrounds in different places. Some people are writing, some of them are writing from jail. Right? Some of them are writing from a ship. Some writing in a field, in a desert, in a home, in a palace. All kinds of different. Everything about each book can be so different. But then when you take each one of those books, you put them all, put them all in a bucket and you stir all of that up, it's one unified story. It is amazing, written over 15 or 1,600 years, y'all, with one unified story. Well, what is that one theme throughout the Scripture from page 1 until the end of the revelation is redemption. The whole book is about redemption. There's one hero, and that's Christ. There's one villain, and that's Satan. And there's one purpose, to lead a lost sinner into a saving relationship with the Lord and bring him glory. That is the purpose. Is the purpose of this book to be uh, an exhaustive history of every event that ever happened on the planet? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The purpose is to lead lost folks to salvation. That's the purpose. And there is no book 
ever that has withstood and had as much opposition as the Bible, which would bring me to the next reason why I trust, is because it's, it has persevered. It has persevered. It is per, persevering, and it will keep persevering, right? No other book has withstood the scrutiny. Again, I was the one that did it myself. Like, and I ain't nothing special, but I picked it up to read it 20 years, 21 years ago to try to disprove it. Like, who in the world do I think I am that I'm going to disprove the Bible? It's absurd. Tens of thousands of millions of men and women have done just that. Maybe not hating it, but trying to disprove it. Because if I can disprove it, then I become, I'm not accountable to anything, right? And so that's what I personally was trying to do. Listen, people have ridiculed it and scorned it. They passed laws against it. Y'all, there was a time in Scottish history where to own, when to own a Bible was a crime worthy of death. Worthy of death. The people throughout history have vowed to, to and declared that they would destroy the book back up two or 300 years before Christ. A, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes said, I'm going to rid the world of the Jewish scriptures. He was talking about the Old Testament. They didn't, and he was going to rid the world of the Jews. They didn't go away, and the scripture didn't go away. The Roman, uh, one of the emperor's rulers, Diocletian, two or three hundred years after Christ, he said, I'm going to eradicate the planet of the Bible and of Christians. Neither died. There have been haters of the word forever, forever. Nobody in Europe ever did more to try to destroy faith in the word of God than a man named Voltaire. And y'all heard of a guy named Voltaire? In the 1700s, Voltaire in France. France was kind of rejecting the scriptures. They tied a Bible to the tail of a donkey and drug it through the streets on the way to the city dump and ceremonially they burned the Bible at the city dump. 1776, Voltaire said this. He said, a hundred years from now, a hundred years from now, there won't be any Bible on the earth except one that is visited in a museum by uh, historian curiosity seekers. Well, ironically, 50 years after Voltaire died, the Geneva Bible Society had bought his house and they were using it to distribute Bibles all over Europe. This little God giggle up in heaven somewhere. Another guy, Robert Ingersoll, who was an agnostic lawyer in the late 1800s, he said, in 15 years, I'm going to have this book uh, in the morgue. I'm talking about the Bible. I'm going to have this book in the morgue. 15 years later, Robert Ingersoll was in the morgue and had the estate sale for his property. A preacher bought uh, the desk, his desk, and this preacher spent the rest of his life writing Jesus-focused messages, sermons, on the desk of the guy that said he was going to rid the world of the Bible. Y'all, the, the Scripture says... The grass withers and the flowers fail, fall, but the word of our God, what? Endures forever. Why does it endure forever? Because it's the word of God. That's why it endures forever. I want to give you what I think is the last reason, and it is because of the transforming power of the scripture, the transforming power of the word of God, and it is fascinating um, it's just a fascinating reason that you can be certain that the Scripture is God-breathed. Paul said, the theme of Romans in chapter 1 of Romans, 
Verse 16 of chapter 1. What does it say? Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why am I not ashamed of it? For it is the power of salvation. Excuse me, is the power of God for what? For salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The scripture contains the gospel. Why am I not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power, the transforming power of God for salvation. Hebrews chapter 4 says the, the word of God is living and, and it's alive and it's active. There's life and there's energy in the scriptures. Y'all, this is the book. You know, the, the, some of, the, of Jesus' guys, when they're questioned and when they're getting hammered by folks, by the Roman authorities, they said, look, all I can tell you, now this is the Ed translation, they say, all I can tell you, all I can tell you is what happened to me. Like, people can argue all they want, but they can't argue with your story. If you're telling your story, can't nobody argue with that unless they just call you a liar, saying you're making it all up, but that's absurd. So all I can tell you is, is, is my personal experience with the transforming nature of the text in the Scripture. Well, why is that? Because it led me to the very Creator. It led me to gaze upon the face of the author. It led me to the foot of the cross and the Lord reached down and saved me. Well, it was the scripture that did it. Y'all, it's the scripture that did it. If it's God breathed, if it is inspired and it is inerrant and it is infallible and its purpose is to lead lost sinners into a saving relationship, with the author, that's what happens. That's the transforming, um, transformative nature of the text in the scripture. Billy Graham, um, in his ministry as a young man, you know, Billy Graham, they called him the Bible, the Bible said man because he constantly said the Bible said this, the Bible said that. So Billy Graham is in London uh, in, a, in a big arena, outdoor arena, and he's getting ready to, for revival. I don't know. This is in the late 50s, I think. Yes, 1954. He's in London. And there's these two guys. One's a doctor. And I don't know what the other guy is. But they're sitting up in the upper, in the, in the, um, in the upper level, sort of. And they're kind of haters. They're kind of criticizing, um, kind of casting stones, throwing darts. But they wanted to see this sort of fiery American preacher. But when, when he began to preach... And he's preaching the word of God. Y'all, he's preaching the word of God. Word of God begins to take its toll. You know, Jeremiah 23 says, Is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rocks into pieces? A hard heart is like a rock. The word of God will break that hard heart apart and, and re, uh, replace it with a, with a soft sort of Holy Spirit-filled heart. And so the word starts to pierce these two men up there. This is a true story, y'all. The word starts to pierce these two men. It starts to break up the hardness in their heart. And finally, the doctor, who's this brilliant doctor guy, um, he turns to the other guy and he says, I don't know about you, but I'm getting ready to go down there and give my life to Christ. And the man that was sitting there next to him said, yeah, me too, and here's your wallet. I'm a pickpocket. It's a true story. That is, really is a true story. The word of God, is it, is it is his word, and it will change our lives. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is inspired. It's not some man's word. It's not some man's word. We're going to talk about 
next week probably the way inspiration happens. But where it speaks to science, it's infallible and inerrant. Where it speaks to history, it's infallible and it's inerrant. Geography, math, the future, it is inerrant. There's miraculous unity across the books in the Bible and it has withstood venomous attacks for thousands of years. Again, it's not an exhaustive history of the world. Don't put that on the scripture. It is a redemptive history. Now, I believe that this book is the primary vehicle that the Lord uses to speak with us today. You can trust that you got the right books. That's where a huge attack is today. You can trust that you got the right words, that you got the words in Ephesians that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. You can trust that you have the right words. Now, I could go down that road for two hours, but we're going to do a class. We're going to do a little thing uh, starting in the middle of January probably, um, probably on Wednesday night or Thursday night, and we're going to talk through how the, how the book kind of came to be over uh, the first 500 years of the church. A transparent look at do we have the right words, do we have the right books. For right now, I'm going to tell you just you can trust it. You can trust it. So he speaks to us through his word. And if that's true, then me and you should develop a thirst and a hunger for it. We should want to dig into it. It should not collect dust on our table. Maybe said in the world we live in today, it should be an app that gets opened on your phone. It should just not live on the last page of your home screen. It should be opened. It should be read. It should be dug into. Now, with that said, I want to show you something that we as a church are providing for those who are part of our church family. I'm super excited about this because I've never seen another church that has done this. We partnered with a company called Faith Life. Probably none of you have ever heard of Faith Life. Maybe some of you have. Faith Life is a company that uses technology to equip believers to grow in the light of the Scripture. What did Paul write to Timothy at the, in verse 17? It's equipping. It is equipping us to do ministry. It is equipping us for good works. And so Faith Life's mission is to equip believers to grow in the light of the Bible. And so there's several sort of um, spokes in this wheel of, uh, uh, of this partnership with Faith Life. Number one, and we'll talk about this in a second, but we're moving our church database. We're moving all the church, um, the way we run the church, so to speak, moving that to Faith Life. One of those things is the giving platform. And if you've given online in the last week, um, you didn't even notice, but you wouldn't have noticed, but it changed. Well, that change to having Faith Life process everything is going to save our church about between eight and $10,000 a year. Um, and you don't even notice the change. It's a significant amount of money that it's going to save, um, that it's going to save the church. But the most exciting part of this partnership is, is what is provided to y'all, and I'm part of y'all, but what is provided to y'all as it relates to engaging with the scriptures and as it relates to all of us engaging in each other's lives. 
I want you to watch a little two-minute video, and then I want to explain a couple things. It's fine, Brian. Totally. Take care. Y'all, here's what you saw. You it's saw fine, um, Faith Life TV, one of the things. Thousands of hours of Christian video content from, from movies to TV shows to, um, to Bible studies to courses, all video content, incredible video content, like really incredible. And if you're part of our church family, you'll have your own account. You can stream it on a, on a phone or a tablet or your television. If you've got a smart TV, you can put the app on the, on the TV. <clears throat> and so you can have any number of devices with uh, the, the Faith Life TV. And it's one login that, that, that kind of gets you all of these things. Uh, you saw the premier Bible study software that's ever existed. It's called Logos. Faith Life bought Logos uh, about four or five years ago. And so Logos Bible software is what you'll get as part of being part of our church family. You'll get, it's, uh, it's the Bible software and it's multiple Bibles. It's about three, each one of you will have about 300 books inside of that software. The truth is if you were to go do that, it would probably cost you a, about a thousand bucks. But it's part of this partnership with them. You'll have your own account and you can do, it's an incredible Bible study software and the ability to dig into Scripture with that software, and the software is not going to all of a sudden um, uh, transform your life. It's the inspired Word of God that does, but it makes Bible study super faster and easier. And then you will be part of the Church on the Trail online community in Faith Life Equip, and it looks and it feels like Facebook. It's clearly kind of modeled after that social media sort of look, 
and Faith Life is replacing CCB. Some of you know what CCB is. Some of you don't know what CCB is. But here's what I want to tell you. Our church database, which has existed for about 10 years, the data is terrible. It's terrible. We need to reboot it so that we can be connected together better. And it's not like we're getting ready to blow y'all up with, with emails and instant messages. No, we're not. But we've got people are in there three and four times. We got wrong addresses in there. We got wrong emails. We got wrong phone numbers. We, it needs to be rebooted. One of the reasons is I and our elders are charged with the spiritual oversight of our church, which means of the spiritual oversight of the body of believers. And if we don't have a database that tells us exactly who those people are, we don't even know who we're spiritually responsible for. Now, that may sound selfish, but the reality is that's a, that's a, as we saw Samantha and Braden were charged with the spiritual oversight of those sweet two little kids, your elders are charged with the spiritual oversight of our church. And so we need the database to be right. You'll see in your seat, you're probably sitting on a family card. And what we need y'all to do, and if you filled one out in the last couple of months because of, a, of checking in a kid into tots or kids, then you may not need to fill it out. But I would even ask you even then to fill one out to make sure and don't assume that we've already got your info because lots of the data is not good that is in, um, it's not like it's evil, it's corrupt and we just need it to be right so that one of the reasons we're going to email you an invitation to Faith Life and you're going to click on that button on in the, uh, the link in that email and you create your username and password and you have access to all of it. So, this is all about, y'all, engaging with the Scripture. And I know this message has run 10 or 15 minutes longer than it should, but I want us engaged with the text of the Bible and therefore with the author of it, right? What this book says in so many places and in so many ways is what it says in Acts chapter 20, and that's repent and believe. Repent and believe. It doesn't mean be sinless and believe because none of us would be saved. Repent, acknowledge that I'm a sinner and repent of that sin. Believe that the Lord Jesus died on that cross to, to, to bear the brunt of that, uh, that sin, of my sin and I'm going to ask him to save me and he will save me. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we love you today. We thank you that you speak into our lives through the text of your Bible. Lord, we thank you that you reveal yourself in the words of Scripture, that your very nature is revealed in the words of the Scripture. Lord, we thank you for the redemption that's offered, the message that's conveyed through the text of the Bible. And Lord, we thank you more than anything is that it will lead us into your very presence. And there you can save us. So, Lord, we love you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And, hey, quickly, if that happened to you today and you said yes to that offer, if you said yes, I want to be saved, the Lord saved you today. If you're watching online, if you'll go to our website and fill out a connection card, let us know that happened. If you're here in the house, fill out a connection card, let us know that happened. And our prayer team is back in the back left. They would love to pray with you. They'd love to pray for you. They'd love to talk to you just so that we can walk this 
kind of new journey with you. Thank you all.